Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the monthly vestibular podcast hosted by the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy's Vestibular Special Interest Group. My name is Allison Miller, and I'm a physical therapist and neurologic clinical specialist working in the inpatient rehabilitation setting at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in Chester, New Jersey. I'm here today to facilitate a conversation with panel members Sarah Oxborough and Ethan Hood on the effects of aging on the vestibular system. To introduce our speakers, Dr. Ethan Hood is an assistant professor in the Doctor of Physical Therapy program at DeSales University. He earned his Bachelor's of Health Sciences and Master of Physical Therapy from the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia. He went on to earn his Master of Business Administration from Pennsylvania State University and his Transitional Doctorate in Physical Therapy from Temple University. Dr. Hood has over 20 years of clinical experience. He currently practices in an outpatient neuro setting, specializing in balance, fall, and concussion management. He is board certified neurologic clinical specialist and geriatric clinical specialist by the ABPTS. He is a member of the APTA geriatric and neurologic sections, served as an item writer for the geriatric credentialing exam, and helped produce podcasts on various vestibular related topics for the neuro section vestibular SIG. His areas of expertise include vestibular therapy, concussion management, balance and falls, and rehabilitation of neurological diseases. Dr. Hood has presented research at multiple national conventions on balance and falls and concussion management. He has also performed numerous continuing education um, courses for physical therapists and other healthcare professionals on management of dizziness, balance and falls, and concussion rehabilitation across the country. Sarah Oxborough received her Bachelor of Arts in Kinesiology and Master's Degree in Physical Therapy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Sarah has been the Director of the Physical Therapy Department at the National Dizzy and Balance Center since 2008. NDBC sees over 3,000 new patients a year with complaints of dizziness and imbalance. She enjoys treating a wide range of vestibular disorders with a particular interest in concussion and vestibular migraine. In addition to clinic practice, Sarah is a member of the leadership team of the Vestibular Special Interest Group through the American Physical Therapy Association. Sarah has been involved in the development of a new American Physical Therapy Association-sponsored course entitled Expanding Neurologic Expertise, Introduction to Vestibular Rehabilitation. She has done many presentations locally and recently spoke at APTA's combined sections meeting regarding motion sensitivity. Welcome, Sarah and Ethan, and thank you for being here today to discuss this important topic. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Mm-hmm. Um, Ethan, we'll start with you for our first question. What common anatomical changes are expected in the vestibular system in older adults? Uh, unfortunately, there, there's multiple um, normal changes of aging to the vestibular system. Um, that can essentially re- reduce its efficacy. Uh, first of all, you have a, a reduction in the number of the hair cells and vestibular neurons within the vestibular system. And also you get a reduction in, in the VOR gain, uh, which results in reduced visual compensation in response to head movement. And, and so what you might see with um, some of the geriatric clientele is that they might uh, normally resp- uh, kind of present like they almost have like a bilateral vestibular hypofunction or loss due to that. You also see a reduction in ability to adapt or gain of the vestibular system, which can uh, kind of halter their therapy a little bit. It doesn't mean they're not going to get better. It just might take a little longer 
than someone who's younger with a vestibular deficit. And then there's also um, some degenerative changes in the utricle and saccule, which can cause some other pathologies within the vestibular system as well. Okay. Um, Sarah, is there anything that you'd like to add? No, I think Ethan covered it. You know, we, we start to see loss of hair cells in the utricle and saccule, and some studies have showed up to a 25% loss in those areas and then in the semicircular canals up to a 40% loss um, around age 70 up to age 95. And then, you know, the other thing is the, the fragmentation of the otoconia like you talked about, and that might be why the elderly, elderly population more susceptible to having BPPV. Great, thank you. Um, the next question, and Sarah, we'll start with you for this one. Are older adults more susceptible to certain vestibular diagnoses? Yeah, I think I just I kind of alluded to the fact that BPPV is definitely a diagnosis that we see more common um, in our adult pop, older adult population. Uh, the prevalence can be, you know, um, seven times higher in those who are age 60 and over. So that's mm -hmm. something that we're routinely checking for in all of our patients in our clinic, even patients who may not complain of signs that we're used to hearing like spinning with laying down, we tend to check everybody age 65 and over for BPPV because they are more susceptible. And some studies have even shown that 9% of a, the population might have unrecognized BPPV. They might not even have symptoms, but when you go to test, that might show up. So I think it's important to check for that because of their susceptibility. Uh, the other thing that we always are kind of keeping in the back of our minds is uh, bilateral hypofunction given the decline that, that Ethan's talked about in the semicircular canals um, and even in the otoliths, so we want to make sure we're doing an ocular motor test to screen for that as well. Thank you. Um, and Ethan, is there anything that you'd like to add to what Sarah has said? No, I, th I think Sarah hit the, the nail on the head, really. The, the two big things are you're watching out for an increased incidence in BPPV. And also, it, it, in the elderly, when you're doing, because usually they're coming into the clinic and they're not necessarily complaining of vertigo. They might be complaining of imbalance. And it's more of that multisensory balance deficit where the vestibular system plays a large role just because from the normal process of aging, uh, its efficacy essentially declines. And it, it's, it's a piece in, in the puzzle of why they're having their balance trouble. Great. Um, great. Thank you both. Ethan, we'll start with you for our next question. Um, what additional comorbidities may put an older adult at risk for developing a vestibular disorder? I think there's probably there's two main ones that we see that really runs prevalent um, in the older population. The first one is hypertension. And with hypertension, the, the inner ear is very susceptible to any change in blood flow. The, 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 there's no collateral circulation to the vestibular system. You know, the labyrinthine artery is a very minute artery. And, and so because of hypertension, the, the inner ear is really susceptible to any type of microvascular change, which might cause um, some sort of damage to the vestibular system. The, the other one that gets overlooked a lot is actually diabetes. When you look at a lot of the studies within diabetes, um, you see that um, the hair cell degeneration is actually, is actually accelerated if someone has diabetes versus does not have diabetes. Um, some of the animal models suggest otolith changes with diabetes as well. Um, you also get uh, significant abnormalities in the VOR and optic kinetic reflexes if someone has type 2 diabetes. And 
But also, what you see is that in adults with diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia, they end up having a lot of cochlear and vestibular dysfunction, um, which is significantly prevalent in that population, if generally if they're over the age of 60. Um, got some other stats out there. Um, the odds of vestibular dysfunction are 70% higher in adults with diabetes. So th those are the two main ones I really look out for. Okay. Um, and Sarah, to you, is there anything else in terms of comorbidities that you um, you look out for that um, uh, Dr. Hood didn't, didn't mention? Yeah, something that we're just recently starting to look for, Sue Whitney talked at CSM this year. There was a great article from 2017 that she talked about uh, that showed idiopathic BPPV being related to osteoporosis and likewise vitamin D deficiency. So that's mm -hmm. something I think is helpful because we have a lot of adults coming in and asking why they may have BPPV and we don't have a good reason, but now we might be able to look at the link between osteoporosis or having them get vitamin D levels checked mm -hmm. for. Um, and yeah, same thing, diabetes. I think that causes damage not only to the inner ear, but also the the visual system and the somatosensory system. So in addition to the vestibular system, it's kind of hitting all three of those. This can um, even more exacerbate the person's dizziness and balance complaints. Great. Thank you both. Um, Sarah, we'll start with you for our next question. Are there any specific medications or classes of medications that are commonly prescribed in the elderly that can um, be related to dizziness and falls? Yeah, I think it's good for everybody to look up the Beers uh, list of medications, and that talks about inappropriate medications in the older adult. One that we talk to our patients a lot about is the benzodiazepines. Uh, you'll see lorazepam or Ativan is often given out initially for dizziness or clonazepam or clonopin. And older adults are most sensitive to the effects of those medications. And we see with those medications, it can increase the risk of cognitive impairment, um, delirium, and, and even falls. So that's something that often our patients come to us being on that medication for their acute symptoms, but we're telling them to talk with their doctor about working on getting off of those medications. The other thing, you know, meclizine doesn't necessarily cause falls. There's no research on that, but it is a, in a histamine, it is a sedating medication. And there's some studies that show long-term use of this class of medications could lead to the development of Alzheimer's. We, you know, we know that meclizine is a um, vestibular suppressant, so we want them to get off of that when we're doing vestibular rehab, but just some of the other sedating effects that it can have on a person I think are interesting to consider in our older adult population. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think the other one is just blood, mesh, blood pressure medications. Not that they're inappropriate, but it's something we're thinking of when people are having changes in dizziness, maybe with supine to sit. You know, is there an orthostatic component going on that we have to think about as well? Great, thank you. Um, and Ethan, anything to add in the way of um, medications as it relates to dizziness and falls? I think Sarah hit most of them. The big thing is really watching out for any medication that can potentially be a CNS suppressant, which you know can definitely lead lead to falls. Um, some of the medication classes out there have been directly linked. Other ones, it, it's more of an inferred whether or not it causes falls. The big thing with the geriatric population is really polypharmacy. Um, you know, the, the classic rule of thumb in, in pharmacology is that if someone's taking four more medications, there's a 100% incidence of having interaction amongst those medications. Now, in most cases, it's as little as being a little fatigued or maybe having a little bit of a stomach ache. But, you know, in today's healthcare climate, when, when patients are going 
to multiple physicians that may not necessarily be in the same health system. So they may not have access to the patient's records, and the patient may not be providing that physician with all the information or all the medications they're on. It can definitely lead to potentially some side effects that might be causing dizziness and or might actually be causing some of their falls. And so as a therapist, when, when you the patient comes in, you have to make sure you get a really good um, list of all the medications they're currently taking at that time. Great. Thank you both. I think you both raised some great points for that question. Um, the next one, we'll start with you, Dr. Hood. Um, and we sort of alluded to this kind of at the beginning of the podcast, but are there any changes within the elderly sensory motor system that result in increased imbalance if there is an underlying vestibular deficit? And if so, how can these be addressed in physical therapy? Uh, well, first, Sarah spoke about this a little bit. There's a lot of visual mm-hmm. changes. So the person can have secondary issues like cataracts, macular degeneration, glaucoma, um, which are some pathologies that will interfere with the, the visual system, but just the normal changes of, of, of the eyes. So presbyopia, basically, essentially your visual acuity being reduced just from the normal uh, process of aging. Also, from a somatosensory standpoint, you have decreased vibratory and passive motion sense, and also an increase in reaction time as you get older, just normally. And so that can definitely impact your, your balance. Um, you know, in addition to as you get older, just from the normal process of aging, there's also weakness that goes along with it. And so all of them can, can kind of uh, combine into um, developing little pieces of why that person has dizziness or why they have a, a balance deficit. So it, it's really important that when you are evaluating this patient population that you, you take a, a really good uh, neurological assessment and see how their deficits or pathologies affect the, the main systems of the, the balance system, either the visual, uh, vestibular, somatosensory, and, and really utilize that information to, to kind of construct your your uh, your treatment plan to utilize sensory rewe- weighing um, to its fullest potential. So if they're, you know, overly reliant on their vision, well, you want to try to boost or increase the, the amount of input that they're getting from their somatosensory or vestibular system. And, and so you can create your, your exercises based upon that, essentially. Great. Thank you, Dr. Hood. And Sarah, is there anything you'd like to add? No, I think Ethan hit most of it. He kind of alluded to that older adults studies have showed they tend to favor somatosensory and visual over their vestibular cues and balance. So when we're doing testing, uh, most of us have access to the modified SITSIB. I think that really helps to determine how a patient's using different balance cues. Here we have posturography, so we're able to assess, you know, what system is the patient favoring. And yes, if they have a bilateral deficit, that might make it harder for them to use vestibular cues and balance, but it's not completely impossible. So we'll design their program using that information and try to get them to start to reweigh to use vestibular information um, and balance. Great. Thank you. So switching gears just a little bit, and Sarah, we'll start with you with this question. We talked a little bit about um, before the relationship between CPBV and older individuals, but sometimes these individuals might have orthopedic limitations that affect their ability to maybe tolerate or get into a, a specific position for a repositioning maneuver. Are there any easy modifications that can be used to assess or treat these patients if they're not able to tolerate the standard testing and treatment position? Yeah, I think there's a couple of modifications that a person could use. One that's often taught is the sideline test, and that's mm-hmm. basically the first position of a Brandt Daroff. So you'd have the person turn their head 45 degrees, 
to one direction and lay on the opposite side. And that gets them into that kind of relative, you know, degree of extension and rotation that you need to check for the canals. That one works great. You know, we use some very fancy technology here and we put foam books on the end of our table to put it into mm-hmm. a Trandellenberg precision. So this way we can kind of get that 20 degrees of extension without having to have the person actually have cervical extension. And that seems to work pretty great. And furthermore, if we can't even get any rotation, we'll actually move the whole body into rotation using the help of somebody else so that you could potentially take a person through an Epley maneuver without having any cervical extension or rotation. And another way that works pretty good is you can roll, have a little towel roll or take a pillow and fold it in half and put that kind of under the shoulder blade area so that when they go down into the hull pike position, their, their, their chest is kind of elevated so their head ends up at a 20 degree of extension. Again, that's a little bit easier if there are orthopedic limitations. So those are the three things that we commonly use. Great. Thank you. And Ethan, anything to add to that in terms of, you know, modifying positions or um, any other tips um, from that end? I think Sarah did a a great job of highlighting it. The the biggest thing as a therapist you have to remember is that it's not the position of the head or neck. It's the position of the canal. That's the most important. So however you can kind of modify the position, you always want to look at essentially the position of the canal within the head, not necessarily the position of their body. And so by utilizing all the the different strategies that, that Sarah um, gave you, basically you can put the canal in the proper position for the maneuvers. Great. Thank you. Um, and on that note as well, you know, thinking about, you know, aging and, and, you know, certainly you see a prevalence of things like osteoporosis, are there any other, are there any clearing examinations or anything like that that you're doing before you're, um, you know, assisting the patient through some of these positional maneuvers? And I'll, um, I'll target this question towards you, Ethan, first. In terms of, am I modifying the the evaluation because of their because they're older versus a younger population? Is that what you mean, or? In terms of like clearing, so for example, are you doing any clearing tests, like maybe of you know the cervical spine, you know, or the spine in general, before you're you know um, helping a patient through you know some of these positional positional tests? To be honest with you. Occasionally, um, you know, mm-hmm. the, the the biggest thing is is watching out for any type of VBI. Um, mm-hmm. But when you you look at you know the position of the Dix Hall Pike and you look at the the traditional um, test for for VBI, um, the Dix Hall Pike doesn't essentially go all the way to the ends of the range of motion of extension and rotation. So it's not necessarily the same test. Also, mm-hmm. when you look at uh, the research on tr- traditional VBI testing the sensitivity and specificity is essentially zero. So what I might mm-hmm. do then is I might actually modify the VBI testing and do it in sitting. Um, and mm-hmm. that, that appears to be a, a little better with sensitivity. Um, and if someone has, you know, any symptoms of lightheadedness or, or anything like that with the testing, then I, I might necessarily not do a Dix Hall plate, but I'll definitely modify it to make sure their neck is in neutral, essentially, and utilize the, the, the different um, strategies that Sarah alluded to before. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. And Sarah, anything, I know you touched on this earlier, but anything that you'd like to add in the way of clearing examinations or anything, you know, related to kind of prerequisite steps that you take before positional testing in the elderly population? No, I think I do everything that Ethan does. Well, you know, as I'm assessing cervical range of motion, because I like to know that for how I'm going to do my table setup. uh, So Mm -hmm. I always make sure I look at rotation and extension before I check anybody for positional vertigo. But what I might have them do is just hold that kind of end, um, 
and rotation range of motion a little bit longer, talk to them. And, you know, again, the test isn't great for VBI, but at least I'm doing something to kind of clear Mm -hmm. that. So we'll hold in in rotation left and right for maybe 20 seconds and just talk to them and make sure nothing really comes up in that position. And then if I'm nervous about anything, I just put my table in the position that I want it to be in so I don't have to go into cervical extension, um, and that works just fine. Great. Thank you both. Um, Dr. Hood, we'll start with you for this next question. We've been talking about, you know, some of the age-related changes in both the vestibular and other sensory motor systems um, with age, but are there any other um, differences in your examination and treatment of vestibular dysfunction um, that that you've recognized when you're working with an elderly individual versus maybe a younger individual? In in terms of the assessment, again, I I don't really change it a whole lot. I might modify the, the speed of the maneuver. Um, based upon, you know, if the person has osteoporosis or if they have a history of compression fractures. So, um, you know, if I'm doing a Dix-Hall pike or a roll test on someone with, with those type of, of pathologies, I may modify the speed and I might have them, you know, for the, the roll test, I might have them do a log roll rather than just turn their, their cervical spine if they don't have the range of motion or if they have cervical pathology. Likewise, if they have, you know, if they're frail elderly and their, their spinous processes are, you know, really exposed because, um, they might be thinner. Um, I might put a pillow along their entire uh, lumbar and thoracic spine to pad them, and I might use a Trendelenburg position to put them into position. Um, but other than that, um, there's not much modification I really do to the true test testing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sarah, um, same question for you. Any differences in your examination or treatment um, with vestibular dysfunction when working with the elderly versus maybe a younger individual? Yeah, you know, we we tend to often use the functional gait assessment here, but when I'm working with an older adult, I might more quickly go to the dynamic gait index, just given that it's designed to predict falls in older community-dwelling adults. Uh, So that's the test that I I probably go to more often. I also make sure to do some kind of static balance test along with ocular motor uh, exam to check for those bilateral deficits. So we've alluded to earlier the loss in hair cells that exist. So I often will do a head thrust test to mm-hmm. see if that's something that's going on because these patients, again, don't always complain of dizziness since there's a symmetric loss going on. You know, and furthermore, they may not even complain of balance deficits because they found ways to modify their lifestyle throughout the day to get through the day. Uh, so I always make sure to do a dynamic assessment and then a static assessment, which usually would include the modified sit-sip or if you have access to posturography, that works great. But, you know, beyond that, I don't treat them too differently because we tend to see older adults who have been pretty active and we see some younger people who are pretty inactive and the older adult actually comes in presenting uh, with less deficits than maybe that younger adult. So even after a visit, sometimes I'll look at the age of the person and be quite surprised um, because there, yes, there's some age-related changes, but that doesn't completely define how a person's going to present to you in your clinic. Sarah actually jogged my memory there. Um, the, the big thing was with the elderly is really looking at their gait speed as well because uh, their gait yeah. speed can give you a, a nice clue of, um, you know, their function, first of all, whether or not they're, they're a functional community ambulator, and if so, to what capacity, but also their fall risk. Um, so mm-hmm. it's something really easy if you're doing like the FGA or, or another test. It might be included in part of that test as well. But, you mm-hmm. know, as far as like a, a single test that gives you, it's a very powerful test to look at their function and and their fall risk. Yeah, I think they consider it, what is it, like the six vital signs, so Mm -hmm. I agree. It's something really important you can put 
two pieces of tape down on your floor so that you have 20 feet marked out. So when you're doing number one of the DGR FGA, you just have mm-hmm. a timer and you're not having to take any extra time, but you get mm-hmm. that gate speed as you do number one of, of those tests. Great. Thank you both. I think those are great kind of clinical pearls and pieces of information. So we talked a little bit about, you know, maybe some potential differences or not differences in terms of examination and treatment. Um, and Sarah, we'll start with you with this question. But in your practice, have you found at all if age affects prognosis? So in other words, does, it, does age affect a patient's ability to improve? Does their recovery take longer? Or are there not um, necessarily differences between, you know, an elderly and a younger individual in terms of prognosis in the context of vestibular dysfunction? You know, I don't, I don't think age, it doesn't significantly influence the beneficial effects of the vestibular therapy that we're doing. And there's a study by Sue Whitney that actually showed that to be true. I think what affects prognosis more is the comorbidities, and we've talked about quite a few of them today already. So do we need to work on, on strength? Do we need to work on coordination? Posture is certainly an issue that... that um, presents to our clinic that we're having to take into account. Is there neuropathy that's going to kind of complicate peripheral neuropathy uh, where we may, you know, we may not get full recovery because that's something that's a little bit harder to change. So I don't really think it's age, but it's more of the comorbidities. And again, comorbidities you could really see um, in a person at any age. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dr. Hood, anything you'd like to add to what Sarah said? I agree with Sarah, and the big thing is, 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 especially with the geriatric population, is that it just might take them a little longer to get better. It doesn't mean that they're not going to get better, but from a, a neurological standpoint, it might just take a, a little longer um, for for the improvement to, to occur. Um, the other thing when we're talking about BPPV um, is just make sure that you assess balance um, after you get rid of the BPPV with the geriatric clientele mm-hmm. because what you might see is that their balance might still be impaired after the BPPV is resolved um, due to all the different factors that we talked about before. And you might have to address it from a pure balance standpoint after that fact to improve their overall balance. Yeah, I think that's a great point. We always tend to check before we even check for BPPV if that's what we think it is. We tend to maybe use like the four-item DGI uh, yeah. before we check for a BPPV, and then once we clear it, then we reassess that to see how balance has changed and certainly can improve. Um, but I think there's some studies out there that talk about imbalance can persist after BPPV, even for mm-hmm. up to a month after. So making sure that you do check for that, I think, is great because there's things you can do right away to help per- to get that going better. Great. Thank you. Um, and I think, uh, Sarah, we'll start with you with this next question. Is there a quality of life difference that you've noticed between an elderly patient with a vestibular disorder and maybe a younger adult with the same disorder? Beyond, you know, beyond working to prevent a fall, because that's something we're concerned with more in the elderly because there can be a higher incidence of injury with a fall, but beyond working to prevent a fall, I don't think there's a huge difference in quality of life. You know, there's a, a favorite quote that I always say to my patients that you don't stop playing games because you grow old. You grow old because you stop playing games. And, and really, as long as you continue to be active in your life, you should continue to have a good quality of life. So I don't find too much of a quality of life difference given that vestibular disorders can affect people in so many different ways. But I, I am very careful to make sure that we have screened for a fall and that we have proper tools in place. So that's not something that we have to worry about because certainly if that happens, that can affect quality of life and affect our recovery. 
Right. And Dr. Hood, anything you'd like to add? I, I think the, the the biggest thing with the autoe again is you're dealing um, if they have a vestibular impairment they they might be at a higher fall risk is that fear of falling and, and so it may be beneficial to use some sort of subjective scale like the ABC or the, or the DHI to to quantify their symptoms because sometimes those scores can actually um, allude to they might be at a higher fall risk than you thought or it might allude to that they may actually be um, lacking some function that you just assume that they they were doing fine at home with, but actually they have a fear of doing certain things because mm-hmm. they're afraid of having the symptoms. I, I, I remember, you know, there was an epidemiological study out about seven years ago um, on the rate of vestibular dysfunction with different age groups, and I always I always keep this in the back of my head when I'm dealing with the geriatric clientele. Is is you know overall there's about a 35 percent rate of vestibular dysfunction um, throughout all ages. But as the older you get, the higher propensity of developing a vestibular dysfunction um, you have. And by the time you get to be 80 years old, there's almost an 85% chance you have some sort of vestibular dysfunction. By the time you're 60 to 69 years old, there's about a 50% chance of some sort of vestibular system dysfunction. So always think about that when I'm um, evaluating someone who's who's older. Um, Even if they're not telling me that they have any sort of balance problem, they very well may have some sort of vestibular dysfunction. And then with the subjective scores and stuff, it might highlight something that might be going on. And if they have that fear of falling, I'm definitely going to address that because that potentially can impact their quality of life. Great. Thank you. Um, Dr. Hood, we'll start with you for this next question. Um, And I know Sarah had spoke a little bit earlier about maybe some new information coming out about um, vitamin D. But to your knowledge, is there any research on either nutrition or other types of interventions that can combat or slow these age-related changes in the vestibular system? I'm not... I'm not sure of anything right now. I think Sarah might be able to um, highlight this a, a little further. The, the biggest thing is is really just prevention from the, the early standpoint is that healthy lifestyle to minimize any sort of comorbidity. So those comorbidities and additional pathologies that you develop because essentially you're, you're not taking care of yourself play a large role in potentially having other issues, other balance issues, in addition to possibly having a vestibular impairment. Um, Go on. So that, that's why I really preach is is just a, more of a healthy lifestyle and really taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Great. And Sarah, we'll uh, go to you next in terms of anything to add for this question. Yeah, I agree with that. Just a well-balanced diet and keeping hydrated. Uh, I think that's something that's important to remember yeah. too. But yeah, that study in 2017 that talked about the vitamin D deficiency. So I think that's something we're going to be looking more into with our patients and talking to to them about, um, especially living in cold Minnesota up here, lots of vitamin D deficiency. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, yeah, I think that study is interesting and important and something that may become more widespread practice as we see such a high incidence kind of a idiopathic BPPV after age 65. Great. Um, so we know as physical therapists, a lot of what we do is education. And we'll start with you with this question, um, Sarah. What do you think are important educational points to patients and their caregivers when you're working with an elderly patient with vestibular dysfunction? I think the biggest thing is that anybody can improve no matter how long it's been and no matter what their age is. So I kind of set that up right away because a lot of people will say to me, well, I'm just getting old and that's why this is happening. And, And dizziness is not a normal process of aging. So I like to correct that myth right away. 
Something that we also do at our clinic is we put together a fall prevention booklet. And I think a lot of our patients already know everything that's going on at home, but there's a few tips and tricks in there that we found to be helpful, such as having maybe a motion-censored nightlight when they get up at night, um, when it's dark, you know, if they're not able to use vestibular system imbalance, they're going to need to use visual systems, so we want to have that light on. We really talk a lot about throw rugs. We talk about, we seem to have a lot of patients who have falls with their pets and their pet dishes and leashes. So we go through that with them. We'll also talk about, people ask about canes and walkers. And initially when we're doing all of our testing, if we do see that they're at a risk for fall, we will issue an assistive device. But we do talk about that being temporary because the, the goal in rehab is to get them out of that fall risk category and that we don't want them to have to rely on that assistive device in the long term. It's a temporary Band-Aid until we can get things better. So those are the, the pretty big things that we educate on. Um, and then it, just being active in general, just going for a walk every day has shown to be really beneficial uh, to patients with vestibular problems. So I think that's really important to make sure they're getting some kind of low-level consistent exercise, whether it's outside or doing some mall walking. Um, either of those can be great. Great. And Dr. Hood, any other um, information or educational points that you provide, um, you know, your elderly patients that have vestibular dysfunction? I, I agree with Sarah completely. And the biggest thing that I tell my patients is that just because you're getting older does not mean you should have a balanced deficit. Um, you know, that's a major misconception. And, and so educating them that they're going to improve. And it might take a little longer for them to improve, but they, they can definitely improve. And the other thing is just to really maximize their function because a lot of elderly clientele will come to you and it'll be, they'll have the symptoms for many months. And so they'll stop doing the things that brings them joy um, or they really like to do. And I, I see it as, as a physical therapist, what we want to do is make sure that we get them back to their normal state of function. And, and so it's, it's really trying to, educate the patient about being proactive in a safe manner, but also trying to get them to go back and and do what they want to do. So if they haven't done a certain activity like golfing or bowling or tennis or something like that, um, because they had that fear of falling or because they're getting dizzy, while they're in the clinic, we'll try to get them to actually do that as part of their therapy. First of all, because from a therapeutic standpoint, it's great. Um, from a second point, because it reduces that, that fear then, um, because they see that while they're supervised in the clinic, I can do it, um, they're more likely to, to, again, get back to that function versus us just saying, oh, go back and play tennis again. Um, so we'll utilize that to really um, kind of make their their therapy more personalized. And, it, again, it's just education about be as active as you possibly can, just like Sarah said, you know, daily walking, active lifestyle, working out, and things like that. Great. Thank you both. I think you both made some great, um, you know, points in terms of education and how physical therapists have a powerful role um, from an education standpoint. Are there any other words of wisdom or clinical pearls that either of you would like to share before we close on working with um, elderly clients with vestibular dysfunction? I think the only thing, I don't know if we mentioned it already, but one thing I always just find interesting, and we do a lot of community seminars at YMCA's around the cities up here, and one thing I find interesting and I share with those those people at those seminars is adults who fall are so much more likely to have had a vestibular disorder, up to 80%. And most mm-hmm. of those people don't even know what the vestibular system is when you walk into those seminars. So I think it's really important to make sure that we're getting the word out that, you know, that falling isn't normal and to, to really the vestibular system can play a big role in it, but we can also make a really big positive change in it. Mm-hmm. 
Great, thank you. And, uh, and Dr. anything else you'd like to add? No, I, I agree with Sarah wholeheartedly. And also, you know, just educating the, the population that physical therapists can absolutely positively treat this and, and improve their overall function and well-being as well. Because a lot of people, when they come into your clinic, they're saying, why am I seeing a physical therapist if I'm dizzy? Um, mm -hmm. and, and part of that is really just education and educating them on the balance system and the vestibular system and what we're going to do. Um, you know, to kind of dispel the myth that, you know, they can only take a medication for this type of problem or they just have to live with it um, because they feel it's a normal part of aging. And it's, it's part of our duty to kind of dispel those myths when we see those patients either in a, you know, a, a wellness fair or in our clinic. Great. Well, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, uh, Ethan, for your time. I really appreciate it. I know I learned a lot in this podcast and we appreciate your information and, and words of wisdom and you know I know that this will um, you know better the profession and how we're able to um, you know help help these patients. So thank you both for your time. Thank you very much. Yeah thanks.